Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. The key to living successfully within the already not yet tension is found in learning how to hold on to the things of this life with a very light grip. While living in the world, kingdom citizens remain detached from it. Embracing the world, they never hold on to it. Caring for the world, they are never devoted to it. Invested in the world, they are never determined by it. Each circumstance is considered in terms of Jesus's promised kingdom reversal. It will one day transform rich men into paupers and poor men into kings. Hey, welcome in everyone. That was a quote from a book of uh, uh, one of our friends now, our first returning guest that we're going to have, and we're going to discuss uh, his book in, in a very interesting topic today. So Rob, why don't you introduce our uh, our returning friend? All right. Well, we are uh, really pleased to have David Crump back with us. David is a retired professor of New Testament at Calvin College and a former pastor with more than 30 years of combined experience in the pulpit and the classroom. His books include Encountering Jesus, Encountering Scripture, Reading the Bible Critically in Faith, Knocking on Heaven's Door, A New Testament Theology of Petitionary Prayer, and then Like Birds in a Cage, which we discussed the last time David was on, Christian Zionism's Collaboration and the Oppression of the Palestinians. And today we're here to talk about his book, I, I Pledge Allegiance, A Believer's Guide to Kingdom Citizenship in 21st Century America. So David, we want to thank you for, for being with us again, and welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm very glad to be here, guys. Thank you for inviting me back. Yeah, that doesn't often so. happen to me. I get a, a return in. <laughs> oh, well, good. Uh, and, and it's not because we're desperate to have guests. So we had to, well, let's get David back. See if he, no, that's not the reason why at well, all. No, I've, I've heard the list of luminaries that you've had on. So yeah, I'm we've, honored we've, we've to been, be here. We've been pretty blessed. And you're, you're certainly among the luminaries. So. I literally, I mean, right after we finished with you the first time, I think our when Rob, like after we continued talking, after you got off the, the Zoom call, David, it was like, we need to get him back right away because that was so yeah. much fun. Yeah, it was. And, oh, and I knew that you had actually written this book, I mm -hmm. Pledge Allegiance and Christian Nationalism. And I have felt that the topic of Christian Nationalism actually is more pertinent than even Christian Zionism is mm -hmm. to the American mm -hmm. Christian church. I, I think this is one of the most crucial conversations we can have. You know, I've said that with the Michael Gorman conversation on, on mm. cruciformity, which I think for personal walk with Christ, that that is certainly one of the critical conversations. Mm -hmm. But I really think the issue of Christian nationalism is a major concern for the American Christian church and the Western Christian church. So yes. let's begin, yes. uh, David, by having you, you know, Vinny and I did a podcast last week that was aired. Uh, we defined nationalism and talked about it a little bit and so gave some background, but why don't we begin with you defining uh, nationalism and, and then even Christian nationalism? Sure. Uh, and thank you again for the chance to have this conversation. Uh, I agree with you. What I think is a very, very opportune moment in American history. Uh, it's always been relevant, but it certainly has bubbled and boiled up to the surface in some very ugly ways uh, recently in our country. So let me begin to answer your question, Rob, uh, with two points of framing I'd like to lay down first. Let me say, first of all, that my primary concern is not simply to criticize nationalism or Christian nationalism, Amen. though those things certainly deserve a great deal of criticism. My primary concern is to articulate the importance of the kingdom of God mm -hmm. for God's people and how an orientation of the Christian life towards citizenship and service in God's kingdom 
then reframes the way that we look at everything else in our life, including our nation and our possible nationalism. The second piece of framing then that I'd like to lay down is let me back up just a little bit more and begin by talking about patriotism. Mm. Uh, here's the way I would define patriotism. Patriotism is an appropriate appreciation of one's country, its history, its values, its culture, its geography, its landscapes, and the contribution that those things have made to one's development as a human being and as an individual. In that sense, patriotism is a perfectly legitimate and appropriate kind of, can I use the word loyalty, loyalty mm -hmm. to have uh, as a Christian? However, we also need to remember then, once we understand what patriotism is, <clears throat> that patriotism really has very little, if anything, to do with Christian discipleship. Mm -hmm. And here's where we get into trouble, because nationalism, then I would define as patriotism on steroids, mm -hmm. including this very, very pernicious belief in the uniqueness of one's nation and one's national destiny that usually expresses itself in some kind of exceptionalism. Uh, where the nationalist thinks that God has a particular purpose that they can divine, that they can exercise and understand for their nation in world history. And this is usually tied to some kind of cattywampus idea of covenants. And I don't know if we'd want to talk about that at some point, but uh, severe misunderstanding of what a covenant is usually contributes to that idea of exceptionalism. Usually in nationalism, the kind of religious glue that holds the diverse sections of the national society together takes expression in civil religion. Uh, and civil religion is usually some kind of a secularized form of religious devotion, where certain rituals and ceremonies, you know, you know Memorial Day, the Declaration of Independence, the Pledge of Allegiance, and certain activities uh, such as veterans marches and you know, recruitment posters and things like that play in to the creation of a national devotion that can be unifying. Hmm. Now, what becomes ironic and downright oxymoronic then about religious nationalism or Christian nationalism is that a particular religion whether it's Hinduism in India, you know, they're in the throes of Hindu nationalism mm. now, the Modi, or Christian nationalism in this place, wants to supplant civil religion and become very uncivil <laughs> in narrowing the scope then of what it is that unifies people. And Christian nationalism would want to say that the Christian religion then occupies that center space, which is to unify the people and define the national goals, mission, and national destiny. And that, I would say, is about as anti-Christian and anti-kingdom of God as one could right. possibly imagine. Right. Yeah. So you have this defining of terms, which I think are totally appropriate. We would completely agree with that. Uh, I, I, would, I would refer to, in the way I teach it, is 
uh, nationalism is patriotism, the, the idolatry of patriotism. Uh, and, and you, you would say it's on steroids. I, I think we mean the same thing there. So when we look at the foundations of American history, and you refer to this in your book, Pledge of Allegiance. So folks could definitely refer back to that. Uh, give us a snapshot of how we tend to view the Christian foundations or what we would, you know, is, is publicly or commonly understood as these Christian foundations of America. Like we can't just start with where we're at in 2021. We got to go back no, a few centuries. No. Yes, you're right. You're right. Well, let's pick up that thread about covenant okay. identity then, mm-hmm. because I think that really gets to the root of the problem here. For some reason or another, not only the founders of this country, uh, but many contemporaries of this country and many leaders of many, many other countries around the world. In fact, I would suspect that any country that has been influenced in any way by the Western Christian tradition has made this mistake in some way or another. Hmm. Instead of understanding that the covenants of salvation history are created by God and then given by God to his select people, we switch that around and come up with this foolhardy notion that people have the freedom to enact a covenant between themselves and God. Mm -hmm. And so they become a covenant people. And we all know the stories about the early Puritans and the pilgrims who came across on their ships and landed on these shores with that kind of inappropriate theology in mind. Uh, Particularly those who came from England, they were already coming from a, a nation that was deeply embedded in English Christian nationalism. And they saw England as God's covenant nation state. They then saw themselves as pioneers beginning a new covenant nation in this new land when they landed on, you know, the eastern seaboard. And these are usually the people that religious right figures refer to today when they want to talk about the Christian origins of America. You know, they're talking about Winthrop and Cotton Mather and and those people who definitely believed that they were establishing Christian societies in a new Christian country. The irony, of course, is that they were fleeing religious persecution back home and came here in order to establish religious persecution in the new world. (laughs) They were some of the most oppressive and onerous uh, governments one could think of where people were regularly being excommunicated and kicked out of communities and sent off into the winter snowstorms to perish because they weren't maintaining doctrinal orthodoxy, however that happened to be defined. So that's the origins of this idea in this country. That is historically separate from what people then go on to refer to as the founding fathers. The Founding Fathers were an entirely different kettle of fish, and they knew their history, not only back in England, but also in the colonies. They knew that story of religious persecution under the Pilgrims and Puritans. They were men of the Enlightenment, and they decided this is why we are not going to establish a state church or a state religion. We are going to have the separation of this, and you do not have to be a Christian not only to be a citizen, but even to hold a position of authority in the government in this new nation. 
And that's the that's the step that many conservatives miss. They conflate those two and are totally erroneous on their history as a result. I would highly recommend the writings of the American historian at Messiah College, John Fee, who writes a wonderful blog that I follow regularly and has written on this quite extensively. You you know, you make the comment about the the covenantal origins and that type of thought. It's funny because yeah. this is actually still a popular idea in, in yes. certain circles. If you're familiar with uh, Glenn Beck, who's the conservative Mormon uh, commentator, yes. he regularly speaks with, and I'm going to do this in air quote, evangelical <laughs> Christian organizations, which I, right. I don't see right. how you could be evangelical when you're pairing with uh, you know, a Mormon and still calling it Christian, but yes. they, they, he will regularly go out and propagate the myth. And I've heard, I've heard him say this, so you could look this up on YouTube or something where he will say, and he'll say this in churches because churches will have him come in and speak on a Sunday service, which is a right. you know, whole, whole other, it's, it's just part of Christian nationalism, but he will right. say, right. there are, there are two covenants and I'm, I'm, you know, paraphrasing, but as close as we'll say, there are two covenants that have ever been made the covenant that God made with Israel. And then he'll say this, the covenant that George Washington made at Valley Forge uh, for between God and America. Wow. And, and, and this right. actually makes a lot of sense in, in Mormon theology in terms of yes. how things yeah. mm-hmm. you know work in that paradigm. But this right. is something where unknowing evangelicals are being right. fed this lie. And this continues right. to propagate this in a popular way, even in 2021, where they hear this and, and there's no discernment there. And this just continues on that, that lie of the things that you, uh, uh, you know, point out in your book, uh, you know, the language that is used of uh, like Reagan, you know, using language like, right. you know, America is a light on a hill and, and using all right. those kind of, you know, quotations, you, you'd quoted uh, George W. Bush mm-hmm. following 9-11 and those sorts of things. Yes, yes. Uh, and so it just exactly propagates right. that idea. Exactly right. I just recently finished reading, uh, edited by Gerald McDermott, which mm, okay. purports to address America's racial problems. And it presents the solution being a return to the American government covenant wow. as a solution to these problems. Just wow. such such pedophagy, such foolishness, an unbiblical balderdash. I, I can't say enough bad things about that kind of thinking. So, so David, so you have a chapter on American exceptionalism. I think this is kind of yes. what we're what we're really talking about a, a little bit. So, define that and kind of clarify even more so what what we're talking about right now. Yes. Well, the idea of American exceptionalism picks up this notion of being in a special covenant relationship with God. And then describing the United States and American history as particularly anointed by God. We become God's instrument in human history to bring God's will and God's purposes to fruition to the rest of humanity. So you hear it often when people talk about, you know, the American mission to bring democracy and freedom and liberty to other places in the world, usually at the barrel of a gun. Uh, That Mm also pours out of this idea of American exceptionalism. It it also is is very, very uh, agreeable to the whole ethos of nationalism because nationalism can never deal with the need to confess and repent of one's sins. Mm -hmm. Nationalism does not have confession and repentance in its vocabulary. That is a good question. I think it's tied up with this idea of exceptionalism. Okay. And the fact that the whole thing springs mm. from such human arrogance and hubris. Mm. 
Self-criticism and personal reflection just is not a part of that mindset. Mm-hmm. It's similar then to like the Pharisees where they were unable to repent because they didn't need to repent. I mean, exactly. Jesus' yeah. gospel message of repent the kingdom of God's at hand is like, well, I'm already in the kingdom, so what do I need to repent to enter it for? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Wow. So, I mean, look look at our re- recent withdrawal from Af- Afghanistan as an example. 20 years, how many tens hmm. of thousands of innocent Afghani people killed right. repeatedly, week after week, rarely if ever reported by the American media? We spent $330 million a day for 20 years, and we finally withdraw, and the nationalists still won't repent. They still won't admit it was all a mistake. They're still arguing that we should have stayed. There is a crystal clear example of this inability of an exceptionalist to confess sin and change his ways. So when you speak to the church then specifically, like here, here, you know, we've defined what something like exceptionalism would be. And in this, it, with nationalism, that definitely is a key marker is the inability yeah. to critique oneself, right? Yes, yes. Um, what what do you say then to the Christian who just, they don't know what they don't know. And they, they've always been taught, especially in the evangelical subcircle that says, no, like, how dare we critique ourselves that that's, yes. uh, you know, like, why bring that shame upon us? We, we still live in a shame and honor society, in a sense. Uh, what do you say to the Christian then who embraces that notion of American exceptionalism? How do you break them out of that way of thinking and, and direct them in a in, in a Jesus like ethic? Yeah. <laughs> We're praying for miracles here, Vinny. That's a, that's a good question. And, you know, your, your question reminds me of how often. And these new parental showdowns with school boards over Mm -hmm. critical race theory, parents are deriding teachers for making their children feel bad over things like slavery in American history. Heaven forbid that an American ever be made to feel bad about any part of American history. Another clear-cut example. You know, to be honest with you, Vinny, one, I have to pray a lot Mm. (laughs) because... It's not natural for me to hold back. I'm kind of an all or nothing kind of guy. And you can't be that way, really, mm-hmm. when you talk to people about this. The second thing I do is I prepare myself for lots of people to walk out. Mm-hmm. Because that usually happens. Mm-hmm. People get up and leave. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, I don't know how else to do it, but as Paul says, simply to try to speak the truth in love. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, David, I'm going to interject right now, because that is so Jesus-like, everything you just said. If you you compare what you just said to what happened with Jesus, he's got 5,000 people there so he can feed them all at one time. But at the end of the day, he's got 120 in an upper room because he was proclaiming the gospel and he he was prepared for people to walk out. But he prayed all the time mm-hmm. for his disciples and even the leadership. Because like, oh, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, "Well, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal right. life, right?" You know. And then the reality of, but I have to proclaim the truth, and and right. that's what the truth looks like. And I know it's not going to appeal. And this is one of the things that I was talking about in the. We I did a series of Bible studies, Zoom studies that we put into the podcast. What are we doing to make these really large churches? Mm-hmm. Well, we're not speaking the truth because if we mm-hmm. were, the truth is about Jesus Christ crucified. Take up your cross and follow right. him. That's right. Deny yourself, deny power, deny privilege, deny pleasure. That's Acknowledge right. your sin. 
and 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 the idea that all yeah we can't admit that american slavery was a bad thing or and right. we're not even talking about what we did to the japanese or the chinese or right. or the irish i just had to inter- interject that let me take this in a, in a briefly different direction which is related obviously and then we'll come back to where we were going to go since 9 11 we have seen the incursion of militarism more and more and more become a fabric of our culture. Yes. I don't think people realize, but we didn't always say in the middle of a baseball game, hey, if you're a veteran, please stand up so we can applaud you. Uh, We didn't always say, if you're a veteran, you can board the airplane before everybody else. Or if you're currently serving, you can board the airplane before everybody else. These are new things, but they're new things that once they get into the culture, you're never going to take it out. Oh, There's no right. airlines is ever going to say, oh, we don't let veterans or military guys go on first. That, that's that's in. It's going to stay. And this right. is what you're talking about, isn't it? This yes. is yes. this is the nationalism and, and the, the religion yes. being embedded into the culture. Yes, that's right. And notice it's it's the valorization of warriors. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. the valorization of bloodshed. We don't like to say it that starkly. We like to mm-hmm. camouflage it and hide it. But it's the glorification of dead children whose bodies have been ripped apart by an American drone. Mm, uh, right. like that's what, what happened in Afghanistan a few weeks ago. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's of it's from the pit. It's of the devil. Right. And well, you've read my book. You know, I have very strong feelings about this because mm-hmm. of my personal experience of seeing my father's life destroyed as a veteran Mm -hmm. because he truly believed this Mm -hmm. and he gave his life uh, without hesitation to all of this and it ate him up and spit him out and destroyed not only him, but my family. So I I have very strong feelings about this. Yeah. Let me interject there also, because I think this is important to note that we are not saying that being a veteran is a bad thing. No, Uh, I don't, I know you feel the same way. I don't believe in war. I don't believe in violence and bloodshed and things of that nature, but I recognize the fact that nations do this and they they quote unquote have to do this. Okay, great. And if you're going to send your veterans, you're going to send your people to a war, you better take care of them when they come back. You know, the fact that, that this country has so many homeless people that are veterans, the fact that there's so many, that veterans don't get lifetime medical guarantee, medical benefits, even though they're going to suffer for the rest of their life. This is a travesty. That's you right. take That's care right. of your people, and veterans should be people you take care of. Exactly. What we're talking about, however, is glamorizing and glorifying militarism. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and embedding that in the culture. So, yes. well, and, and, and even to interject on there, uh, to just speak to nationalism and then Christian nationalism in, in regards yes. to how we view this. A few years back, I was working in a local high school. I worked in the, the college and career center. And so we dealt with a lot with scholarships. We're doing a scholarship night uh, where all the kids are rewarded for the various scholarships they won. And the military, they always give out scholarships to local uh, high school programs. And so we and I, we always dealt with our military recruiters in my mm-hmm. office. So we, we have the military mm-hmm. recruiter go up and I forget which might've been the Marine uh, guy get up and he's going to give an award to our top like math student of the year. And in the middle of the, the Marine giving, you know, prepping, give the speech a parent stands up and stops like literally in the middle of the, of this event stops everyone says wait a minute yes we need to you know commend the students this whole night is about the students right but we need to we need to uh thank this man for serving and like mm. literally he riled the whole crowd up in the middle of this there's no separation of saying no we just can't celebrate the kids here 
the fact that we have this right. glorified superhero. And I like that this guy is still a friend of mine, like or Facebook friends. Right. Where he doesn't right. even live in the area, but it's like, no, like he didn't even feel that that was right. But that's what right. happens where you have this glorification and idolatry of the, uh, you know, it's a real life superhero in a sense. Yeah, uh, they, so you they, see they that just from, from, from a natural, from a nationalistic standpoint, yes, like there's yes. no religion attached to that. No, but no, even no. there, um, a couple of weeks ago in the Bay Area, we had a fleet week. My, my son, who's four, you know, he, he loves stuff like that. So we went down to the Golden Gate Bridge and we watched the Blue Angels. And I remember watching the Blue Angels as a kid when my dad took me uh, to see them. And, and it's amazing. And at, it literally never dawned on me till I'm watching this. Like their name is the Blue Angels. Like mm. even the fact that we attach mm. this angelic name to this, right. you know, the, the, right. the, this fighter fighting, to and I've never thought machine. about it. Yeah, and, yeah. and a killing machine—that's what that's these, they have. They have missiles and guns, and uh, right. and and I'm thinking like if this was the North Korean government and they called something the Red Angels or something like that, we would be up in arms. How dare they attach the word angel to this thing? Right. But right. for us, it's assumed though this is what our military does. They are the angels right. of the sky that protects things, exactly. and and that's just another subtle form of Christian nationalism. Uh, seeks out. Yes. 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 You're right. There's really kind of two directions of this conversation, right? One, of course, is the fact of nationalism and what it is, and then the church's participation in that. The second direction of that is, is that the church is supposed to be kingdom focused. Yes. So not only yes. are we not supposed to go that direction, but we're supposed to actually go in, in the opposite direction. So yes. let's, let's speak about the first of those. I'm going to read a quote from your book. In a pluralistic society, such as America's, why should Christian prayers, holidays, and ceremonies be prioritized above those of other religions? Why should displays of the Ten Commandments, crucifixes, and nativity scenes receive pride of place on state lands and facilities without equal representation from Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, or Hindu symbols? The honest answer is that there's no reason for Christian ceremonies or insignia to receive any state-sponsored preferential treatment. Speak to that idea a little bit there, because it's, it's the same thing that we've been discussing all along. Yes, yes, yes. Thanks for raising that point and getting us back to the church again. Uh, it's very important, and it's what I find most upsetting in this. I, I'm not surprised that secular society remains right. secular. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm saddened when the church becomes secular. Right. Uh, and that's what you're pointing out right here. You know, I think that there are at least a, a couple of different problems intertwined here. And I'll see if I can parse them out and address them separately and talk about how they relate. One of them, I think, is the simple arrogance and pride of human nature in believing that one's own views are always necessarily superior to everyone else's views. Mm. Now, granted, as Christians, as a Christian, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Right. That no one comes to the Father except through him. But I recognize that that's the gospel. And that's what I expect every member in the kingdom of God to believe and adhere to and defend and to promote. But I have to remember the church is not society, and society is not the church. And there's no reason that I should expect that the society around me should hold to those same values and same priorities as I do in the kingdom of God. The only reason that I would insist upon that confusion going forward, I think, is just sheer arrogance, maybe masked by ignorance, but pride nonetheless. The second issue that I think is at stake here is the very, very long history that we have in the West 
uh, going back to Constantine, of what has come to be called Christendom, where Christianity has a very, very long history in the West of being the privileged religion. Hmm. And an awful lot of American conservatism and Christian conservatism in particular really amounts to to the cries of despair of, you know, religious Jonas find themselves locked in the belly of a decaying Christendom. (laughs) You know, they want to resurrect this thing. They want this Christendom to come back alive and to serve their interests. And so you promote your own displays and your own holidays and your own catechisms in society. Well, that was always wrong. It's, It's always been a ball and chain around the church's leg. And it's something that any thoughtful Christian should be more than happy happy to shake off and get rid of it. Which leads me then to the third point I think is involved here is the fact that we don't like to suffer. We like to be served. We like convenience. And to live in a society where my faith is prioritized and things are handed to me in a convenient fashion to serve my religious priorities is much more comfortable to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to suffer ostracism. Yep. I don't have to stand out as unique or different. So keep it coming. And at the end of the day, it once again amounts to a failure of Christian witness and faithfulness. <laughs> David, what you said, I have been saying for years, and I just did this on a podcast that I did in a class, whatever, and I have, the, have, have this previous conversation as well. And I think that the parable of the sower really actually provides the matrix for understanding exactly what you're talking about. That the parable of the sower actually, right after the parable of the sower in Mark 4, Jesus says the lamp is coming not to be put under a peck measure, but to be put on the lampstand. You are to proclaim the gospel and proclaim me. And as a result of that, you're going to experience thorns and you're going to experience stones. Mm -hmm. And the good soil is the one that bears fruit in the midst of those stones, in the midst of the the thorns. And the thorns are power, pleasure, comforts, Mm -hmm. peace, prosperity, et cetera. And the stones are persecution and suffering. Yes. And realize if you don't promote me, then you might not experience those things. But if you do, you will experience those things. And yes. it's human nature almost to say, I want to get rid of as many thorns as I can, as many stones as I can. And Jesus says, no, actually, you're going to come and this is what's going to happen for you. So I, right, right. when I see that that we're what you're saying is that we're imposing a religion upon our culture so that I can experience comfort and peace and power. and pl- It's exactly what right, right. the antithesis of it. And so I think many yes. Christians are like, well, wait a minute, what, what is this? What's this David Crump guy saying? It's like, no, he's actually saying the gospel here. Uh, let me bring this in another direction then, because you said in, in one of uh one of the, on page 249 of your book, I pledge religions. You say, you say this, I'm going to read a quote. I once uh, told a colleague that he had given me the nicest compliment of my life. When he said in exasperation that he could never predict where I would come down on a controversial social issue, I smiled and said, thank you. I hope that's because I'm trying to think biblically and not politically. And so I think that's really significant because what you're saying is not necessarily a democratic view or Republican view, because that's what we do, right? It's it's a gospel view. Speak speak to us a little bit. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. Well, as I try to not just argue, but demonstrate with biblical evidence extensively in the book, The kingdom of God brings an upside-down ethic for God's people. It's the way that Jesus taught us to live. You know, up is down and down is up. And I give a theological explanation for that along with plenty of evidence from Jesus' own teaching. 
So if we're going to go through the world thinking like Jesus, trying to live like Jesus, uh, the kingdom of God is contrary to what we are naturally given as a part of the normal human socialization and educational project. So following Jesus means that we are going to end up, and it's not easy. It's hard work. It takes discipline. It takes time. It takes lots of bloody noses and scraped knees. But we are going to become contrarian, countercultural kind of people who do not fall into predictable human patterns. Mm -hmm. Now, there will be plenty of moments where the image of God in secular people speaks beautifully to what Christians should be espousing. And it's not as though there's a complete antithesis between a follower of Jesus and everything in the world around them. However, there is a different pattern. And following the Jesus pattern, if we're doing it correctly, I think, is going to mean that we're we're kind of unpredictable people Mm -hmm. who are secular compatriots around us because we don't follow their pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we don't fit one of their boxes. Yeah, yes. exactly. It, yes. you know, your, your book, uh, I pledge allegiance, which obviously we're, we're talking about. We've Rob and I have gleaned a lot from, I couldn't figure out where to, how to categorize it. Cause the first part of the book is kind of a political theology book. And then the second part of the book is kind of an ethics book. Is that the way you deliberately laid it out? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> I think it, I think it's probably why my books never sell very well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I loved it because it, it it goes from this theory into a ton of application. I love both parts of the book are great, but you right. start off the book by saying Christian ethics must begin with a proper understanding of Jesus. And you, and you mm-hmm. flesh that out through the, you know, through the entire thing. <laughs> so when we discuss Christian nationalism specifically, you know, when we're talking to our tribe, we're not necessarily just critiquing the nationalists out there, the the, the world right. who's acting like the world. It makes sense yes. that they would they would idolatrize right. the nation. Like, what else do they have? What other hope do they right. have? Right. Exactly. So yeah, it makes sense exactly. that the military man is their savior. Like, who else do they got? Yes. Right. But when the church does it, this is not good. And ultimately, it's looking for this other power, uh, this other privilege, this thing that we're holding on to. Like, if you were just you know, lay it down to the church. You're sitting down with the average Christian who has been wrapped up in this. How do you? clearly delineate between Christian nationalism, power, and the gospel, and and show that just how antithetical they are to each other? Yes, yes, good question. Well, there might be a couple different ways to do that. Well, I'm sure you guys have all done it well in various ways. The first thing that comes to my mind at the moment is I think I might try to remind people of what it means for a Christian, a follower of Jesus, to be a stranger and an alien in this world. You know, Jesus and the apostles teach us this very, very clearly in the New Mm -hmm. Testament. When you sign up to follow Jesus and become a citizen of the kingdom of God, this world is no longer your home. Mm -hmm. Okay? So first of all, let's get ready to learn how to divest ourselves of anything that we would consider a worldly possession that is important to us. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean we all, you know, take vows of poverty and run naked through the woods like St. Francis or anything like that. But it does say things like, say, territoriality, the insistence that this piece of real estate is mine. Mm-hmm. And I'm it's worthy of defense. In fact, it's so worthy. I can kill people for it in order mm-hmm. to protect it. 
and to make sure that nobody else takes it from me or gets a hold of it. Or let's talk about class, you know, economics. If I occupy a certain economic position in society, because damn it, I've worked hard mm -hmm. and I've earned it and I've paid for it and I own the mortgage and it's mine. And I don't want anybody taken away from me, whether it's through raising taxes or socialism or anything else. You know, every time I find myself running in that kind of wheel of thought, I need to stop and reconsider. Because the kingdom of God has nothing to do with territory. There is no geography to the kingdom of God, except the entire cosmos, right. where, where God is Lord. There is no ownership to the kingdom of God, except in the servanthood that Jesus shows us in giving away everything, even our own lives in the service of other people. So that would be one way to begin to have that conversation with people. How do we think and live as strangers and aliens in a foreign land that is not ours? Well, even wow. if it, as you're saying that, my whole life as someone who's grown up in the church, you hear the, the constant command when it comes to specific materialism things, especially for kids, right? You know, it's all God's stuff. And it's that idea that like, it's not yours, it's God's be good stewards, which is obviously a very true statement, but it's one of those things that's, it's taught to kids. It's not always right. practiced <laughs> amongst adults, right. but then it's funny because if we're going to be consistent with that, and I haven't, I haven't put this connection until as I heard you speaking part of the stuff that is all gods is the power and control <laughs> and the influence that you might have and that you might carry in society as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and so when the good Sunday school teacher is teaching the kids saying, Hey, it's all God stuff. You need to be okay with giving it up. That just doesn't mean having two TVs or two jackets right. or the, it, it also could mean the, the power that you might yield in the public square. Uh, yes, yes. If, if it's associated with, uh, you know, another pagan leader, why would you want to be unequally yoked? Like th th this exactly. seems to be the actual times where those passages are applicable, not just from a moralism that says, and then, you know, but really this passage means don't date a non-Christian. It, it might mean that, right, but it, right, it means right. so much more than that. It's not just yes. that. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So much more than dating and marriage, mm -hmm. you know. Vinny and I talked about this a little bit on our podcast that we did last week on Christian nationalism and also, but what got me thinking and, and redirecting all this was my study of the book of revelation uh, that's mm -hmm. that's where i land and you begin realizing wait a minute this is the way kingdoms are right the beasts are, mm -hmm. are kingdoms mm -hmm. and you start thinking oh well maybe my kingdom is that way too right maybe yes. my country because you you yes. grew up as an american i grew up in the public schools thinking okay we are without fault we are america the world's police force and mm -hmm. we're, we're the good and all these things and and then you begin to realizing actually no there's this american history about slavery and then oh mm -hmm. yeah and then there's this american history about what we did here or the american indians right. and you start right. okay what well, i need to be able to step back and critique doesn't mean it's all bad I, but i need to be able to step back and critique this and then the question becomes okay now what does it look like being kingdom people in the middle of this and you begin so i'm writing a commentary in the book of revelation right now and the title of it is revelation a love story mm -hmm. and it's because you don't think of that. We think right. we put the book of Revelation in the same paradigm. And that same paradigm is, okay, we're the good guys. Everybody else are the bad guys. God's going to come in and wipe out all the bad guys and establish his kingdom for the good guys. And it's about wrath. And it's like, actually, no, the mm -hmm. way God establishes his kingdom right. is actually through the cross. Right. right. And what Michael Gorman says, you know, this cruciformity, this cross-shaped living. Right. 
And my argument is actually that's what the book of Revelation says also, that, that God mm -hmm. wins, that creation is redeemed through the suffering of, of God's people. Exactly. So let's, yeah, here's what exactly. we want to do, if it's okay with you then, David. The second element of this, you know, is what does it look like with the church in, in, mm -hmm. in the world? And then what does it look like the church being the kingdom? And so we have a lot to discuss still. So we're going to mm -hmm. ask if you'll do us a favor and come back next week with us. And we can kind of continue this conversation. I can't say enough about how important I think of a conversation this is. So if you'll be willing to do that, we'll be back next week. I'd be more than happy to return. Thank you again. Awesome. Well, hey, everyone, hope you uh, enjoyed this part one of this conversation. You're, you're definitely going to want to hear part two then. I want to hear part two. I can't wait to hear that. So <laughs> we'll experience that. But listen back. Make sure that you're liking and subscribing to the Determined Truth podcast to make sure that you're notified every time a new podcast drops. But we will see you guys next week as we bring friend David Crump back on. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.